the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and the Pharaoh king of Egypt to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Wish my eyesight was as good as his. It was the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. It was the same, Moses and Aaron. Now when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, Since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden his Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. Then Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned the wise men and sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians and also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. The word of the Lord. The Chinese word for contradiction literally means fear shield. The Chinese word for contradiction literally means fear shield. And it originates from a story that came from the 3rd century B.C. You see, the story was told of a man who was selling a spear and a shield. And so, when asked about the quality of his spear, he said, this spear is so incredible that it can pierce any shield. And when asked about the quality of his shield, he said, this shield is so incredible that it can stop any blow. And the man was stumped one day when one of his customers asked, well, then what would happen if you took your spear and hit it on your shield. And the man was unable to answer. And so came the origin of this word spear shield, which literally means contradiction. Because the question that a lot of people have wrestled with over the years, and physicists talk about is what happens when the immovable object meets the unstoppable force? What happens when the spear meets the shield? 
And that's exactly what we see play out in today's passage. In today's passage, the unstoppable force of the Lord's deliverance of His people is coming to bear upon the immovable object of Pharaoh's hardened heart. And as the spear meets the shield, who's going to emerge victorious? The deliverer or the defender? The holy or the hardened? You see, today begins the final decisive encounter between the Lord and Pharaoh. However, the beginning of this encounter sounds a little bit unusual to us. As we heard Brian and his grandson read for us, the account opens with Moses' objection, and then the Lord's command to Moses and Aaron. Then we get a genealogy, which I had them skip because I'm a nice guy. You're welcome. You didn't have to read all those names. Then we hear a second time the Lord's command to Moses and Aaron, and a second time Moses' objection. And while all of this seems kind of unusual to us, there was a purpose behind this opening. You know, let's begin with the language of Moses' objection in verse 12. Moses objects to the Lord's plan of deliverance, saying, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Now, there's a little difference in the translation that Brian was using and, and the translation here. And it literally says, uncircumcised lips. Now, circumcision wasn't something done to the lips. Circumcision was the removal of the foreskin, and every male in Israel was circumcised on the eighth day. And it was a mark that they belonged to God's covenant people. See, circumcision was a sign of God's ownership and of His promises. So when Moses says, my lips aren't circumcised, he's saying, God, I'm speaking, but there's no sign of your presence and no sign of your promises being enacted by my speech. I'm speaking and no one's listening. You might remember last week we looked at chapter 5. He goes to Moses and on God's behalf he says, let my people go. And the result was not freedom. The result was more suffering for the people of Israel, as he said, you need to make the same number of bricks, but I'm no longer going to give you straw. You have to find your own straw. And then, when he complains to the Lord about this, the Lord speaks some words of assurance to Moses. So Moses turns to speak those words of assurance to Israel, and what happens? Exodus chapter 6, verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So Moses goes, hold on, Lord, I'm speaking, but no one's listening. There is no sign at all that you are with my lips. There is no power when I am speaking. It, you, you appear to be absent. Your presence and your power are absent. There's, there's no one listening. There's no deliverance that's being affected by what I'm saying. So why now would Pharaoh start to listen to me? And so Moses objects in verse 12, and we actually hear the exact same objection repeated again in verse 30. But sandwiched between these two objections, verse 12 and verse 30, what do we see? We see twice repeated the Lord's clear command to Moses and Aaron. You two are the ones to go. And then in the middle, this genealogy right at the center. Well, why would the Lord have that put there? Because, friends, this is the answer to Moses. You see, Moses says, I'm clearly not the man for this job, Lord. So far I'm speaking, no one's listening, nothing's happening, no promises, no deliverance, nothing. 
I'm clearly not the man. And so what we have in the command of the genealogy is the Lord reassuring Moses and reassuring Israel who read this later on. God didn't pick the wrong person for the job. There's the command twice. Nope, this is the guy. These are the guys I sent. And then the genealogy. What we find is God saying, these, these guys, Moses and Aaron, the very Moses and Aaron, right here descended from Levi, they are the men I've called. And even more than that, the genealogy appears here because if you take a close look at it, Aaron actually has prominence in the genealogy. Because after Israel is delivered from the Exodus, the entire second half of the book is about the Lord organizing the proper worship of him. And Aaron and his descendants are going to be the priesthood. And so the second half of Exodus is going to center on Aaron and on the priesthood and on God setting up worship. If the first half is about Moses, the second half is about Aaron. So God gives the genealogy. He says, nope, these are the men. These are the men I've chosen. And more than that, Aaron and his descendants will be the priests. Moses will lead to freedom. Aaron and his descendants will lead to worship. These are the men. And so right here in the middle of Moses' objections, we find the Lord's answer. These are my guys. These are my guys. Now, one more quick observation about God's chosen men As one of the elders observed, when we studied this passage together, God favors senior citizens. According to chapter 7, verse 7, Moses was 80 and Aaron was 83 years old. Friends, you are never too old for God to use you. And just so you know, if we ever find ourselves in conflict with an angry king, I plan on applying this passage and sending out our spry 90-year-old Terry Hurlbutt to the front line And he's going to fight for us. So, I think I saw you here today, Terry. Now he's hiding because he knew that was coming. Uh But friends, then comes what we've been waiting for. The main event. The main event is here. And in this corner, you've met Moses and Aaron representing the Lord. And in the other corner, we find Pharaoh. He represents all the gods of Egypt. And the irresistible force is about to meet the immovable object. And just before these two contenders come into the ring to engage, what happens? We hear the Lord over in his corner, and he's he's giving uh, Moses and Aaron the pep talk. At the beginning of chapter 7, he's he's going over the plan one last time before he sends them out into the ring. And Moses and Aaron are clearly ready for this fight because they come out swinging. On behalf of the Lord, they land the first punch. Let my people go. But Pharaoh blocks it. He counters by demanding a sign. But Aaron has been anticipating this, and with the Lord's signature move, which is called the staff throwdown, he throws down his staff, it becomes a serpent, and the Pharaoh sorcerers, they're not thrown off by this snaky move. They use their own dark magic arts, and what do they do? They match Aaron's move. They transform their staffs into snakes as well. And just as those in Pharaoh's corner are about to cheer, thinking that they won this round, Aaron's snake eats their snakes, and that had to have them feeling down in the mouth. That's it. That's it for today. Don't worry. No more of those. And that's the end of round one. It's the end of round one. The irresistible force has slammed headlong into the immovable object, and yet 
the immovable object continues to refuse to yield. Again, the last verse that was read for us, verse 13. Still, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Still, Pharaoh remained hard and unyielding, despite the warnings, despite the miracles, despite losing round one. Pharaoh is hardened, he's unyielding, he's immovable. But many read this account today and they ask, but was it his fault? Was Pharaoh to blame for being hardened and immovable? Because many people are troubled by the Exodus account and the accounts of the ten plagues because they notice that while here in verse 13 it says Pharaoh's heart was hardened, earlier in this chapter, as was read for us, Verse 3 says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. So who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Because a little bit later, during the ten plagues, we hear in chapter 8, verse 15, But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord has said. So who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Was it just hard because of his character and the circumstances he faced? Did the Lord harden his heart? Did Pharaoh harden his heart? And if if the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, then isn't the Lord unjust in his treatment then of Pharaoh? And all of Egypt with these plagues? Because how could the Lord blame and punish Pharaoh for failing to soften and to yield if it was the Lord himself who hardened? So friends, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Now next week as we study through all the plagues, we're going to find out this question, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, is actually at the center of the accounts of the ten plagues. Because there are 20 different references through this account to Pharaoh's heart. 20 different references. About half of the statements, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is attributed to the Lord's sovereign action upon Pharaoh. And about half of the 20 say that Pharaoh hardened his heart. It was either his essential character or his own choice to harden his heart. So what does that mean? Who is responsible for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Well, you know, we're not the only ones who've ever wrestled with this question. The Apostle Paul also wrestled with this question, with the question of God's sovereignty and our human responsibility. In Romans chapter 9, Paul argues throughout the whole chapter that yes, God is sovereign, and no, God is not unjust. And one of Paul's prime examples is Pharaoh. Pharaoh himself. And in Romans chapter 9, verses 17 through 18, it says, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he will, and he hardens whomever he will. Well, well, that seems to to land the uh, responsibility there on God's side, doesn't it? And if God's responsible, then how's God just? If God is sovereign over Pharaoh's heart, how is God just in then bringing the plagues upon him in all of Egypt? Well, friends, to understand this, 
We need to understand what it means that the Lord hardened Pharaoh. Did did God somehow twist Pharaoh's arm or, or twist Pharaoh's essential character to make him sin and do something that he wouldn't otherwise? Friends, the truth is God does not make anyone sin. He is perfectly holy. He's completely separate from sin. So it's impossible for him to be the source of sin. Rather, as James chapter 1, starting in verse 13, teaches, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Lured and enticed by his own desire. Friends, God does not make anyone sin. Pharaoh was lured and enticed and handed over to his own desire. He was hardened in his own essential nature. In his own essential nature. Now, for those of you that are parents, how long did it take you to teach your kids to be disobedient? I'm just wondering how long it took you to teach them all of the finer points of being self-willed and self-focused. Did that take you a long time? It sure didn't take me a long time. My kids seem to come hardwired for it. Because the truth is, we all come hardwired for it. As if we were born that way. Self-willed, self-focused, and, and disobedient. You know, King David writes in Psalm 51, verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time that my mother conceived me. You see, humans aren't born as tabula rasa, blank slate. Neither are we born inclined towards the good. We're born in rebellion. Theologians call it original sin. There's something broken within our essential nature at the very core of who we are. We're not as we should be. You know, author G.K. Chesterton joked, Certain theologians dispute original sin, which is the only part of Christian doctrine that can really be proved. (laughs) You know, while this culture wants to believe a a rosy view of human nature, that, that humans are somehow bent towards the good or are at least morally neutral, we know it's not true. Friends, you know it's not true because you know the darkest recesses of your own heart, don't you? You know those things that you don't want Anyone else to know? Those temptations? Those desires? Those actions that you do when you don't think anybody's looking? When you don't think anyone's noticing? You know, at no point, at no point in this account is Pharaoh ever presented as wanting to be reasonable or desiring to be merciful and then somehow being thwarted by God. Rather, throughout the account, we see that Pharaoh walked into the account and from the very beginning he was arrogant. From the very beginning, Pharaoh believed himself a superior power, superior over Moses and Aaron. In fact, Pharaoh believed himself to be a god. He was the greatest of all the gods of Egypt and he was certainly greater than this god, Yahweh, who was saying, let my people go. All of these things were already there. They were already part of Pharaoh's essential character before God ever, present, before God ever shows up in this narrative. So whatever the Lord's hardening was, the Lord in no way forced Pharaoh to do something he didn't want to do. 
Pharaoh was lured, enticed, and handed over to his own desire. He was hardened in his own essential nature. And, and moreover, we find, and we'll see when we look at the plagues next week, that after the plague of hail, in Exodus chapter 9, verse 27, Pharaoh actually confesses to Moses and Aaron, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right. I and my people are in the wrong. Pharaoh actually confesses. What I'm doing is sin, and I'm guilty of it. And the Lord is right. And then even more, in Exodus 10, verses 16 and 17, after the locusts, Pharaoh confesses, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So Pharaoh here again confesses he's culpable. I'm responsible. My actions and my attitudes, they're sinful, and I'm so guilty it necessitates forgiveness. So friends, whatever the Lord's hardening is, at least three things are clear. God didn't cause Pharaoh to sin because Scripture is clear that God causes no one to sin. Secondly, the Lord didn't twist Pharaoh's arm or twist Pharaoh's nature. Pharaoh was lured, enticed, and handed over, hardened in his own essential nature, which was all present long before this episode ever happened. And finally, Pharaoh himself recognized and confessed his own personal agency and his culpability. I sinned. So was the Lord sovereign over Pharaoh's hardening? Yes. And was Pharaoh responsible for his hardening? Yes. And is the Lord just in this all? Yes. Now, friends, I don't pretend to believe that this neatly wraps up the question with a little bow, and now we can go home and have no more questions about it. Because there are more nuances, there's deeper questions, there's more complex what-ifs. There have been oceans and oceans of ink that have been spilled trying to explain the great mystery between this intersection between human responsibility and divine sovereignty because the Bible clearly affirms both are true. Not only in this account of Pharaoh, but throughout Scripture, we encounter declarations of both God's sovereignty and human responsibility. For example, at the end of his ordeal in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph declares to his brothers, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Do you hear that? You meant it. You intended it. You purposed it for evil. You're responsible. But God meant it. The same word. God meant it. He intended it. He purposed it for good. So both of them were acting. God's purposes prevailed. They both it, both are true. The people freely chose and thus are responsible for their evil, and God sovereignly intended and orchestrated the events. Or as the Apostle Peter declared in his great sermon on Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He says, God's sovereign plan and purposes were fulfilled. Humans freely chose evil. They were lawless. They're culpable. They're responsible. They're guilty. 
repeatedly the Scripture affirms God is sovereignly in control of all things, and yet, somehow, we are free and responsible in our choices. And it's a great mystery. In fact, you might even say it's a living truth. It's a living truth. And like any living thing, we can try to dissect it so we understand it perfectly. But when you dissect any living thing, eventually you kill it. We find that the biblical authors weren't so worried about dissecting this mystery as much as they wanted to embrace the God of the mystery. The biblical authors weren't so concerned with understanding this truth as they were with engaging the God of all truth. Because, you see, sometimes our academic exercises in dissecting these things are simply a safe way to avoid engaging with the living and mysterious and fearsome God. Too often our avid dissection of these living truths just leaves us with dead doctrines and dismembered dogmas. Friends, God never said. He never said that He would be a God who would be fully understood. But He did say that He's a God who is to be fully worshipped. And even if our limited human minds can never fully understand Him and His ways and His mysteries, friends, can we still trust Him? Can you still embrace Him? Can we still worship Him? We should also note, friends, that unlike us today, the original hearers and readers of Exodus, they wouldn't have struggled as much as we do with this idea of the Pharaoh's hardening. Instead, as they listened, they would have heard a warning against their own hardening. Their worry wouldn't have been for Pharaoh. Their worry would have been for themselves. The psalmist in Psalm 95 uses a phrase from this Exodus narrative. In Psalm 95, do not harden your hearts. He's warning Israel in its worship. Listen to Psalm 95. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as you did at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. You see, as Israel read or heard this history read and recounted for them, their struggle wouldn't have been the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. The fear would have been that their own hearts might harden. They would have remembered the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. They would have remembered the hardening of their ancestors' hearts as their ancestors wandered through the wilderness after the Exodus. And they would have feared that they, too, might become hard and resistant to the Lord. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. In fact, in the New Testament, the author of the book of Hebrews picked up this very psalm. And in Hebrews chapter 3, in Hebrews chapter 3, he quotes this psalm, Psalm 95. Then he adds in verse 13, But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And friends, as we read this account, and as we remember this hardening, our greatest concern this morning should be the danger of our own hardening. Our own resistance against God. I know I've told the story before of Pastor Erwin McManus, 
who had a conversation with his then teenage son, Aaron. And Aaron was faced with a difficult decision. McManus wisely said, do you hear God telling you what you should do in this, in this occasion? And Aaron said, yes, I do. And I'm not going to do it. And McManus wisely looked at his son and he said, I explained to him that was his choice. But this is what would happen. If he rejected the voice of God and chose to disobey his guidance, his heart would become hardened. His ears would become dull. And if he continued on this path, there would be a day when he would never again hear the voice of God. There would come a day when he would deny that God even speaks or has ever spoken to him. But if he treasured God's voice and responded to him with obedience, then his heart would be softened. His ears would always be able to hear the whisper of God into his soul. And friends, today, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Because sin is deceitful. We rationalize, we justify, we minimize, we quickly become hardened to sinful ways, sinful beliefs, sinful attitudes, sinful practices. What was once a big deal is no longer so. What once bothered us no longer goes noticed. What was once optional has become a need. What was once conscious choice has become unconscious. What was once a compromise has become our lifestyle. The hardening that affected Pharaoh and the Israelites who wandered in the wilderness threatens you and me today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And friends, the gospel, the good news is that Jesus Christ has come to break down the hardness of our hearts and open our eyes to the deceitfulness of sin. He's come to forgive our sinfulness, to replace our sin-sick, sin-hardened hearts with new hearts that are uncorrupted and responsive. We find this hope and this promise spoken through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Friends, the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus Christ is the irresistible force that has come to break through the deceptiveness of our sin and to break up the hardness of our immovable, sinful hearts. Friends, today... Today, how do you stand in resistance to God? Where are you hardened and unyielding? In what ways are you refusing to submit? When have you heard Him speak but refused to listen? Let this account of Pharaoh, the remembrance of the Israelites wandering in the desert, and the hope of Jesus Christ act upon you now like an irresistible force. And today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Let's pray. Father, that's our prayer. That's our prayer. Soften our hearts. Replace our hearts. Give us new hearts. Hearts that fear you. Hearts that love you. Hearts that respond to you. Take out our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. May we be overcome 
overcome by the transforming power of Jesus Christ, overcome by what He has done. Transform us, Lord, and send us forth from here that the world might know of the freedom that comes by Jesus Christ our Lord. In His name we pray. Amen.